1: So welcome to Tech Makers a Ubisoft podcast. I am your host David Usher. I'm the founder of Reimagine AI, the artificial intelligence creative studio, and I am the host apparently for this five-part series, not a normal host, but a host all the same today. And today I have a very special guests with me, Amanda, Elizabeth and Andrea. Could you please introduce yourselves and what you do?
2: Sure. So my name is Amanda Gerald and here at Ubisoft, I am a user research project manager. And my area of focus is on research that involves toxicity or player engagement. And I came to Ubisoft with a PhD in psychology from McGill University. So that's where I'm from.
3: Hi, I'm Elisabeth Doyon. I'm at the University of Quebec at Montréal. I study the social representation of artificial intelligence. And I worked at La Forge
0: on an exposition, Explore, at the Centre des Sciences de Montréal. And uh, I'm Andrea Feller. I'm a production manager at La Forge, focusing on the teams in Montreal and Toronto. And uh, my job here is to help all these amazing projects that are sort of going down the pipe, facilitating for them, making sure they have everything that they need so that the research can, can move forward and change and revolutionize and fail and do all those things it needs to do. <laughs> Fantastic.
1: I mean, that's what we're here to talk about today, is uh, how LaForge has brought these two worlds together and the things that have been brought out from, from all that work. Um, can you begin by talking a bit about the, your LaForge journey Andrea, to talk about the integration between academia and basically business and how those two worlds have, you know, cross the streams, as we were saying before.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's been a lot. It's been a fun ride. Um, I'm really lucky. Uh, it was part of just being at Ubisoft, and I was working on another team at Ubisoft. And uh, I found out about La Forge, and it was really interesting. And my background was from cinema and arts uh, and sort of way out there. And it was uh, actually Yves Jacquier and Olivier Pomares uh, who approached me, and they're like, oh, with your experience, we think you would be a good fit. And I was like, really? <laughs> Are you sure? Uh, so they brought me on the team. And that's sort of what La Forge is about, is bringing people from all these backgrounds uh, and bringing them together, whether you're a student, uh, an intern, an specialist in the field or an expert in the field from academia, uh, to sort of bring together into a hub and make everyone work together to look at all these points of view. And the results of that are going to be two different things. So there's obviously things that could further video games and how that can have an impact. And I think that you've been talking a lot about these this week. Um, but there's also about advancing academia, so open sourcing data sets so that other people can in, can use that, uh, or working, seeing how the tools that we can provide as a video game company um, can help the research as well, because we do have a lot of data uh, that comes from our games uh, and these ladies uh, will also talk about that. Uh, but for the climate change initiative that we worked on, was, that was definitely an advantage and it was one of the first projects that I got to work on when I started in the team. So it was really a lot of fun.
1: Okay. I mean, that's what's interesting about today is it's, it's really different topics than, than before, different projects than we were talking about in the last podcast. Amanda, can you tell us a little about your project specifically
2: Yes. So the project that I'm working on in collaboration uh, with Lafarge and other partners at the Montreal User Research Lab is called Talksbuster. And basically what we are trying to do is to automate the detection of harm in our in-game chat. So we're trying to develop a um, multi-categorical uh, model. So not just looking at is something harmful or not, but trying to identify specific categories of harm so that we can take the appropriate action uh, and help to protect our players.
1: So automating that whole process. Exactly. What what uh, what system or what kind of process are you doing to do that?
2: Well, um, it's been... How's um, it built? How nuts is it bolts. built? Um, the nuts and bolts. Um So basically, uh, it all started with uh, trying to first identify like what kinds of harm did we even want this model to detect. And that was an important first step of the project to really understand what does harm look like in our games and what are what are the things we want this model to even identify. Um, so once we had mapped out that initial taxonomy for harm and clearly defined it and made sure that the relevant experts within the company and beyond had, had a look at this and vetted it, um, then our uh, machine learning scientists and NLP experts really got to work, um, so the models that they're using right now are big models. So it's based on BERT, um, and I am not an AI specialist, so I won't be able to get into <laughs> the nitty gritty nuts and bolts. But the
1: general, the general, general yeah, the general sense, the
2: general. yeah. As we're using these these big models to um, to help uh, train um, uh, the models using our data uh, to help identify these different kinds of harm. And a really important step in the project uh, was, uh, as Andrea mentioned, we have lots of data. So we have mountains and mountains of chat data, but that alone is not enough to train these models. We first have to uh, find examples of what this harm actually looks like. So here it was really important for us to, to work with people who were knowledgeable of our games, like players, to help go through our chat logs and to find examples of these forms of harm so that then we could show that to the model, the model can learn from it, and then it can automatically detect it on its own.
1: How big is the data set that you need of each of each vertical of harm, oh, if you will? Oh man, that like Is its it 100s is it is it hundreds, is it thousands, is it millions?
2: That is a really, really great question. So because we're an R and D project, we're trying to focus on the minimum number of examples that we need. So right now we're targeting around a thousand examples per category of harm. And we have about nine categories of harm that we're trying to detect. And they range in in substance and in severity. Um, so some of them are more common than others, as you would expect. So insults and flaming is one of the categories that we're trying to identify and that we have a lot of. But <laughs> other categories like minor endangerment, fortunately, we don't have very many examples okay. of that. But it's not just the number of examples that are important. It's also the diversity and the variety of those examples, too. And what we've been learning through some of these initial stages of the project is that when you have lots of examples, but they're all very similar to each other, Um, the model will learn, but it'll kind of latch on to the common elements within those examples, which may not be accurate or representative of the form of harm that we're actually trying to detect.
1: Interesting. So where is the project now? Like, how far has it gone in, in terms of where is the build?
2: I'd say that we're developing some maturity. So we have one proof of concept that's pretty much done. Uh, it's in its early stages, so we have something that works. Basically, we have okay. a working prototype, uh, but it still requires a lot of um, a lot of improvement and and in, uh, in in ways that we need to shape it to to work better.
1: Do you ever create examples from examples? Use AI do multipliers?
2: Not yet, but that's something that we're actively working on right now. And okay. this is something that we are doing again in collaboration with La and looking at some of the projects that they've already uh, been working on for other purposes uh, for. Um, speech generation or text generation to try and see if we can leverage some of that existing technology to help us with that with that uh, challenge
1: fantastic so it's actually going to production or it's going to test it's going to a test phase
2: it's going to a test phase right now um, Amazing. so the the next big milestone in the project will basically be to put it into um, shadow mode so it could run live. Um, but hidden so that it's not ac- like not taking action or making decisions or anything along those lines in live production, but so that we can compare it in parallel to our existing solutions to be able to come up with a better one-to-one benchmark um, to see how we are doing uh, based on what we have so far.
1: Amazing. Elizabeth, could you tell us a little bit about your project, please?
3: Yeah, for sure. Our project, I can't call it my project because there are so many talented people that worked on it and I just came to cross the finish line get all the glory I mean I had the best place to be so our project was to to create a game small, a small application to try to teach children from age 6 to 12 What is reinforcement learning, which is a type of AI? So our challenge was uh, multiple. There were multiple challenges because uh, the technology was done. I arrived when everything was pretty much working. They created a modified version of a beautiful game with a rich environment in San Francisco to make a car learn by itself. OK, learn to drive. And now we need to understand how does reinforcement learning actually teach the car how to drive? How do we do that? So the idea was to try to make some of the parameters of the reinforcement learning algorithm available for children. And the most important one, but without explaining much of it, just making the game out of it have the children get an intuitive and empirical experiment of how reinforcement learning works when they change something when they change how far the car can see when they change uh, what sort of brake does the car have so all of these notions, quite complex actually in the cognitive sense are passed through actual experiment playfully within a game that's beautiful that is well made and completely professional so it's a great project i was not the only one to work on it we worked with coders we worked with multiple teams there was team involved in the graphic in the sound and i i just got all the glory
1: fantastic what's the output of the data that you're collecting from the kids playing the game
3: or we is it playing have, we, itself? We are not collecting data. We actually played a little bit of magic. Okay. Okay. So we had um, a prototype, which was, as prototypes are, very finicky, uh, very sophisticated and very finicky. So we had to translate that finicky prototype, which is m- working most of the time for most of the command we do, and try and package all of this into a more robust Technology, so something like a museum wouldn't have to maintain it, wouldn't have to restart the algorithm multiple times a day. So, we did a little bit of magic and we simply run thousands of training models. We train thousands of models first to learn what are the variables that give us behavior that can be comparable, that can be okay, is it the same? Is it a good driver? Is it a bad driver? What's in the middle? What happens if you only have the handbrake? How does a car learn by itself how to drive without the regular brake and only the handbrake? What happens if the car can't see very far? What happens if we give a lot of rewards for speed? So all of those, the variable that we needed to extract from all the experiment, and we simply captured videos. Okay. A lot of them. (laughs) (laughs) So we could make available into a... Easy to manage UI with a couple of buttons and the whole program has like a hundred and forty words explaining the whole reinforcement learning okay wow. so that those were the challenge uh, we had to face, and it has to be fun and what have the kids said about the game? I think they liked okay. it a lot. So, well, the test, we run multiple tests, and they liked it a lot. And we made it quite easy to like it because most of the training model, as you would expect from learning to drive, are pretty bad at it. <laughs> they're pretty comically bad at it. So they make a lot of exida- accidents and lots of crash, and they can't turn. And they are all kinds of behavior and only a few uh, specific parameters will give you a good driving, uh, self-driving car. Some of them are extremely funny to watch. So the output, the game is very fun to play with a child or an adult
1: is this game in the world right now
3: yes it is where
1: do you where do you play this game
3: at the des sciences de so the Science center in Montreal in the old port there 's a a complete room dedicated to this uh, this application. you have the full sound you have a big screen with the beautiful city of that that 's coming from a game from Ubisoft that has been cleaned up of everything else except the beautiful environment and they can go crazy and destroy this beautiful city trying to make a car <laughs> learn to drive
1: fantastic, fantastic. it's great cuz we
0: tried to take out it's it's from watchdogs the the game because it's for children so we can and we went through such an effort to make it as clean as possible so that children can find out how to make a car drive well so i've been to the science center a few times and it's amazing to watch the kids do it because um, they try to bring back everything that we try to take out. So it's not, they're not trying to make the car drive well. They're trying to make it create as much <laughs> damage Chaos as possible. As it can. And kids are like, why aren't there pedestrians? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was wondering, actually. That's why. My brain they, went they to pedestrians. Ex- exactly. They expected sort of the Ubisoft, and we were like, no, it's about science. That's science. Right. Science. Yeah.
1: science and safety. <laughs>
0: But I'm having fun too. It's like, no, science. (laughs) (laughs) There were a couple,
3: as an example, when I say it's finicky, uh, there was one very extreme example. Uh, I ran, well, I didn't because I trained the car, but when I ran the model in the game, the car actually crashed into the um, gas station. There was a massive explosion. It was very much not for children. (laughs) So that's an example why we couldn't deliver that model because it was unpredictable. Each time you run the game, it's an AI. So it's going to decide each time. And sometimes you're going to end up with a massive explosion with a gas station. And that's not something we wanted to manage, and that's not something the museum wanted to manage. So that's why we went with a very unsophisticated
0: yet very robust solution.
1: Andrew, can you tell me about the Climate Science Project?
0: Yeah, so the Climate uh, Science Project was uh, done uh, in partnership with uh, Joshua Bendio, at Demila, the so they're working on a website and what they want to do is create consciousness about climate change. And uh, the theory I think behind it is that if you can project yourself as to how climate change can affect you personally on a personal one individual basis, maybe you'll have more of an impact than this general idea of there's gonna be flooding and fires and drought uh, to make it much more complete. So the concrete so that the way that they want to do it is um, that you can see your house. How it could be affected by the different forms of climate change would affect the Earth. So, how would it look like if there's no grass? How would it look like? Uh, So, the one the problem that we tackled was flooding. The issue with flooding is that to create uh, GANs, so these image basically, it's an image that's created out of nothing. So, if you want to see your house flooded, how do you create the water that's around it that doesn't exist? Um, In order to do that, the data the data set that it needs is a picture of an unflooded house and a flooded house and there's not that many of those because people aren't like I'm going to take a picture of my house just in case it gets flooded and then oh it's flooded great I'm going to take it exactly the same angle so um, the team at LaForge uh, what they proposed uh, is to come in and to use uh, again it was San Francisco so it's the same game Watch Dogs because we can flood it because it's just uh, digital it's a digital world so what we did is that we kind of went around the and this is very high level I'm sure there was much more details and technical details, but this is the way I perceived it. Um, you drove around the city of San Francisco, you took pictures of the different places, and then we uh, virtually flooded the city, which we can do because it's in a game, uh, and then we took the same pictures, and that's what it served as the data sets. And with the data set, the pictures that it was producing, they were more than three times more believable uh, in the testing than without the data set.
1: Is it? And it's running on a, a Google Maps
0: it's is running it? on a website from the Mila, so oh, from the, okay. yeah, yeah. So, no, no. And, but
1: when you're when you're looking at your home, yeah, is that from? Is that is yeah, that Google Map layover? Exactly, right.
0: exactly. So I've you can go the, and I've look seen at the site for sure. Yeah, it's a lot. I flooded my house, and oh. <laughs> and it was great because we went with the students. Uh, we took like a tour around Ubisoft, and we took a bunch of pictures of the Ubisoft. So we have so many flooded pictures of the Ubisoft building in Saint Laurent, and uh, we were like, oh, we want to see this part of Montreal flooded, and we go and take a picture and test it, and it, it was. It was really a lot of fun to see it and to see how it it you can use an engine and or a game that is solely used for entertainment and how you can use the exact same technology and the city that exists to help uh, something that's I think as worthy as climate change consciousness. So it was really. And cool. has
1: it has it been? I I, actually, I want to give a shout out to my friend Sasha who was working at Mila and working on this yeah. specific project before she went to Hugging Face. Has, has it been getting a lot of uh, attention these days?
0: Yeah, and you know, uh, I think so. And uh, I think that it's uh, there was a media blitz about it and it was in the news channel. So I think people are starting to use it to Fantastic. sort of create this consciousness. And everyone's excited to see what their house looks like. And it's expanding beyond floods as well. So yeah. they're looking out. So I think Fire forest fires. Hail. Exactly, exactly. So <laughs> you can experience ancient Egypt. How would your home <laughs> look like under... But uh, And what was fun about it is that we were able, again, we're talking about open sourcing and companies, it's difficult for the private sector to open source because there's competitions and things like that. But in this case, we were able to open source the data sets. So it is available if people want to use this data set, it is available. So that's a, that's a really
1: it. interesting use. The way to create a data, data, data set is the, is the using virtual models and then manipulating the virtual models, doing comparison, using a GAN on both. That's, that's pretty interesting.
0: Yeah, that... and I, it's the tip of the iceberg. So, you know, Absolutely. if anybody's listening to this and has ideas of how you can use virtual worlds and what you can do to it so that you can get a data set out of it, it's not just user data set that's collector or anything like that. It's just how you can use the virtual worlds that are con- that are constructed for the games.
1: Very cool. I'd like to also talk about the, uh, the integration between science and enterprise and how that has been, um, firstly, for the scientists in the room, for the people coming from universities. How has that been to come from uh, a place that works in a very specific way with a, you know, specific thought patterns and ways to develop things um, to working in what is essentially in, you know, research but business as well. Do you want to take over?
2: Sure. Um, so from from my experience, when I was doing my, my PhD, this was a whole world that I wasn't even aware of. It's not something that people did, especially in psychology. People do not go from (laughs) university and then go into industry. It's very, very rare. So when I was wrapping up, um, I had initially started a postdoc and then decided that, you know, in the end, academia is not for me. And I started to put my feelers out to see what was possible. Um, That's when I started to explore industry. And coming to to Ubisoft, um, I was hired into the Montreal User Research Lab, and I'm collaborating with Lafarge. It has been such an amazing experience to take some of the the skills and the expertise that I developed uh, during my PhD and to apply them to completely new problems that I never even knew existed. And I had a lot of apprehension when I was first joining. I thought, you know, I'm going to be very constrained. There's going to be very focused, specific problems that all need to solve. Um, but I found that it's actually the opposite that here in this environment, I have exposure to so many different complex, challenging problems that I can play with and get to collaborate with really amazing people and strong experts in so many different fields to try and address these these issues so I, I couldn't be happier oh
1: amazing that's a that's a that's a endorsement <laughs>
3: Well, I would say those are very different worlds um, When it comes to rhythm, there's something so exciting about working in an enterprise and getting results right away, having everyone working with you to help you. It's not the same dynamic as the university. And in the university, you're mostly evaluated all the time. (laughs) So people are there to tell you what you can do better, what you can do otherwise, while in the industry, it's more like, how can we help? What can we do to further? So it's not the same rhythm. It's it's not the same sensibilities. I wouldn't say one is better than the other. Uh, the challenge is making those two overlap. I mean, that's the hard part. And uh, in a place like La Forge, you have that. You have people with both those rhythm sensibilities that can actually help you to figure out how to make those two juxtaposed. I can't believe in six months we turn out with a game. It's crazy. I mean, (laughs) it's amazing. (laughs) Six months in the university, you've got some plan to do something. (laughs) (laughs) You'll do the
1: grant in six months, six more months. Yes, and you'll
3: get the grant, and there's the ethics committees gonna come by. And I mean, it's a very slow process where you run multiple projects at a time. And it fills up your your agenda completely. So I think a place like La Forge is extremely important because everything we develop at the university has an output, can do something, but the rhythms are not good. We're, we don't have the same uh, sensibility. And I think it's good that university takes more time. Because when you do science, you need all those critique and evaluation. The point is not to get rid of them. So I think those two, um, those two places need to be some separate. And there's a, a great justification to have a place in the middle, serving as a like a safe place for both of those rhythms to cross over and to get excited about projects. It, Talks Buster is so exciting. I mean, it's awesome. I want to join in. You count me in. <laughs>
2: Please come help us.
3: <laughs> so that's what La, La Forge is to me. It's a place where many sensibilities can can be together, work together, on complex project, but give real output and it's encouraging and, you know, lots of pride when you put out something in the world. It's creative. You need to find solution and it's completely different and I think all of those places should exist. I'm sorry for no, the that's, very convoluted
1: that's I mean, response. That's, that's exactly right because it's great that there's a place in the middle, but you do need some places that are pure research, some things that are, you know, you don't want to build Theranos at Laforge. Forge. Um, you know, you need some things need pure research and some things can sit in the middle and some things need to be pure enterprise. I'm curious, pandemic aside, where would you normally work? Do you work, is there a, is it, all, are you all at a specific location at Laforge, or is there, is it all remote normally or how does it work normally?
0: So every, everyone's coming back uh, post-pandemic. So we do have an office space that, yeah, Elizabeth didn't get to see. Well, you came once, you came Twice. a couple of times. <laughs> um, but now we are at the office and I think that what's, been really great is that uh, i i love working at the office i i don't appreciate working from home at all Uh, and i came in right away and i sent out sort of this email saying okay guys i'm in who wants to come in with me and all the students within i think 10 minutes i had all the replies of the students uh, saying i want to come in which makes sense because we don't know they're they're usually younger a different living situation things like that they're in the city um So what it created is that it was me and a bunch of students for, I think, about two and a half months (laughs) in the office. And now everyone's coming in and uh, on a regular. We're still on a hybrid mode, uh, but we're starting to sort of get people in at the same places for meetings and things like that. So we can still have that that interaction. But uh, there was this great bonding with the students that happened because of the pandemic. And they were just uh, all in here. It was a really rewarding experience to get to hang out with them as much as I did.
1: That's great. So what what is next? For LaForge Forge, generally, what's the next evolution, would you say?
0: Well, uh, it is growing. Uh, so there's now offices uh, around the world. So something that started in Montreal, it turned five, and then it just, like, exploded all over the world. So there's an office uh, that's in Bordeaux, France, uh, there's office in China, in uh, Shanghai and Shandu, Um And there's another one in Toronto. So uh, I think that's incredible because what it's creating is uh, even more partnerships with different universities and with different students that come with different cultural baggage. Uh, so that's really exciting, not to mention the expertise from the different scientists that are coming in and working full time because there's the students, but there's also the researchers. And of course, the business aspect of it, because now we can interact with games that maybe we would have less access to before um, and all the Ubisoft offices from around the world also have different expertise that they can bring in. So it's been really exciting these past few months to sort of see everything growing that way. And I think it's exciting for all the levels. So it's really exciting for the students because they have an outreach that they didn't have before. Uh, also, students coming in from different universities around the world. We're getting so many profiles from everywhere. Uh, but the scientists and even the people working on the games, they now we can now collaborate more efficiently.
1: Fantastic. And on that, I just want to say thank you very much for coming. A really interesting conversation. I'll see you again soon around the city, I'm sure. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks. Thank, thank you. you.
1: So thanks for listening to Makers, a Ubisoft podcast. I'm David Usher, and it has been a pleasure being your sit-in host for this five-part series. See you soon.